0: This is Better Edge, a Northwestern Medicine podcast for physicians. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Wilner, Associate Professor of Neurology at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center and Division Director of Neurology at Regional One Health in Memphis, Tennessee. Today we are discussing the clinical management of low-grade glioma. We have three expert guests from Northwestern Medicine joining us today. Dr. Jessica Templer, an epileptologist, Dr. Curran Dixit, a neuro-oncologist, and Dr. Matthew Tate, a neurosurgeon. Welcome, Drs. Templer, Dixit, and Tate. Thank,
1: Thank you for having us.
0: Let's start with you, Dr. Tate. Please tell us a little bit about the low-grade glioma program at Northwestern Medicine. Why is it important that low-grade glioma patients receive comprehensive care?
2: Uh, sure. Well, th- thanks again for for inviting us. We're excited to talk with you about our program. Um, you know, the patients with low grade gliomas are kind of an interesting patient population in that it's a you know a, a disease that affects relatively young people, kind of at the prime of their lives, you know, recently having kids, getting getting going with work, um, and yet they have this disease that's going to be with them chronically and ultimately convert to a more malignant or cancerous type of tumor. And so it's one of these diseases that we want to be quite aggressive from a medical perspective to to treat the tumor, but also keep very much in mind patients' quality of life um, as they're going to be dealing with uh, the consequences for for often decades even. And so the three of us in particular have been interested in in, in seeing these patients for quite a while and thought that it, it made some sense to kind of have a more focused effort at understanding the disease and how it impacts patients and their caregivers and families. And so that was the kind of Uh, This culminated fairly recently in our establishing the low-grade glioma program here at Northwestern.
0: Thanks for that, Dr. Tate. Now, you mentioned that there might be or could be or always is an an evolution to a more malignant form. Dr. Dixit, can you tell us about that, the challenges that patients with low-grade glioma face, that it might get worse or come back?
1: Yeah, certainly. I mean, that's one of the challenges um, that, you know, we see in our everyday you know, the, one, one of the ways we think about this disease is when you meet people for the first time, you know, we're trying to get a sense of like their understanding of the process. You know, when you we, when we meet people for the first time with this, you know, with the initial diagnosis, you know, how do you communicate um, such a such a disease process to someone that, you know, right now you just had surgery, you know, you had a seizure that was left to the diagnosis, you had some sort of operation to remove the, the, uh, the tumor, um, but then we're talking about something that has, you know, a lot of connotation. You know, people come in thinking, was brain cancer. And certainly that's true, but, you know, not all brain cancers behave the same. Um, The biggest challenges with, you know, uh, people with low-grade glioma is thinking about it in such a long window, it's a long period of time, and so as Dr. Tate uh, you know, alluded to is we're thinking about the longevity um, uh, of uh, uh, for these patients, and so the challenges are how do we follow these uh, tumors, or how do we measure response to treatment, how do we measure progression of disease? You know, um, the the current metrics we use right now uh, are good, but you know they could be better. Uh, our treatments currently. Uh, I don't want to say are outdated, but, you know, we are using treatments that have uh, been studied, you know, over 10, 15 years ago. Uh, And as we're learning more and more about the disease biology, we're trying to bring that in uh, into kind of um, a more uh, up-to-date method of uh, treating these patients. And so so that's also one of the challenges, you know, how do we utilize evolving knowledge on how to kind of change the behavior or change the trajectory of... um, uh their disease uh, again when you think about someone who will hopefully be with us you know 10 15 20 years and hopefully even beyond is really thinking about that from a, a you know lifespan you know we're thinking about from a quality of life perspective you know that includes you know cognitive function that includes family planning you know that includes seizure uh control so so many kind of specific um uh, facets to uh, patients with disease population that we don't see in some other uh, brain cancers because uh, we're not thinking about uh, these people in such a, a long period of time. Basically,
0: is malignant conversion inevitable?
1: I mean, yes. I mean, in, in many cases. So when you think about low-grade gliomas, it's that's kind of a broad. Um, Category, You know, within them, as we learn more about these tumors, uh, over the past, you know, five, six years, uh, our uh, understanding has evolved to the point where our classification has changed twice. Um, in 2016, the WHO had a, uh, an update to the uh, 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 brain cancer uh, classification system. You know, it was updated again in 2021. And one of the main uh, changes is utilizing more uh, molecular uh, diagnosis. As a part of that, another update was kind of changing how we classify tumors. And so um, now we consider tumors based on their grade, uh, for example, uh, and molecular features. So an oligodendroglioma, glioma, which is a common uh, local glioma we see, uh, their highest grade would be a grade 3. Uh, an IDH mutant astrocytoma, um, would th- that would be classified as a grade 4. Previously, those were called glioblastoma. But unfortunately, to answer your question, yes, uh, grade two oligodendroglioma at some point. Uh, Hopefully, that's really far from the time uh, uh, we see people. And the goal of management is to delay that transformation. You know, a grade two astrocytoma with an IDH mutation. You know, if we see them now, um, you know, we discuss that. You know, our goal of management is to delay that malignant transformation for as long as possible. But unfortunately, we do consider an, an, an inevitability.
2: Yeah, and if I could just add a little bit, I I think it is important to clarify because we're not really talking about grade one gliomas, which are technically low-grade gliomas. Those are typically behave in a benign way, but more grade two or infiltrating gliomas are really kind of what we're focusing on in in our program. And classically, you know, the terminology is a little confusing, but usually when we talk about low-grade gliomas in the literature, we're referring to grade two. Uh, or these infiltrating kind of precancerous type tumors is probably the best way to think about it, and they do inevitably progress if if kind of classified correctly,
0: if you will well that that's very helpful now, Dr. Dixit, you mentioned uh, seizures, and uh, Dr. Templer, you are an epileptologist, a specialist in seizures. Can you tell us about the role of seizures in these patients? Uh, what happens and how do you treat them?
3: Yes, so unfortunately, a lot of patients with low-grade gliomas are at risk for seizures. And we've now seen that that's largely related to their IDH mutation, which is a common um, finding within these gliomas. And seizures is often the way that these patients initially present. But unfortunately, they often continue to have seizures or can continue to have seizures after resection or after their surgery. So one thing that we work to do initially, um, myself and Dr. Tate, as well as the other surgeons, is thinking, what can we do as part of their initial surgery to make sure we're offering them the best possible surgery in terms of not only their oncologic treatment, but also thinking about seizures. And then after surgery, thinking about how we can best manage their seizures and so often that includes their oncologic treatment if they receive radiation or any chemotherapy but also thinking about anti-seizure medications. And that's usually where I come in as talking about what what anti-seizure medication should we be thinking about and in collaboration with the neuro-oncologist and neurosurgeon um, in coming up with a treatment plan.
0: Is there any role for uh, brain mapping you know, at the time of surgery to look for the uh, epileptic zone? is that has that been proven to be helpful?
3: So that's something that I'm personally very interested in as well as Dr. Tate is really understanding so we um, so there's something called ECOG which is essentially uh, doing that electrocorticography and doing that recording at the time of the tumor resection. The challenge has been historically that the studies have all, a lot of them, if not all of them, have been retrospective. And what we found is that ECOG, some studies have shown that ECOG can be beneficial in terms of seizure outcome And some studies have shown that ECOG has not been beneficial, although that's really been a selection bias because the patients that were often getting ECOG were the ones that were having more challenging seizures to begin with. So we hope that at some point in the future, we'll be able to do a prospective study looking at the value of ECOG and how we can um, hope to offer them better resection in the future. And that's something that we looked at is specifically one finding in their ECOG studies to help us Hopefully, be able to offer them a better resection in terms of their epilepsy outcome as well.
2: Yeah, and I can comment a little further too. I, I think that it's, it remains an interesting question. Um, classically, it's been done, and in my training, um, it, it was sort of the general paradigm was if somebody's having refractory seizures, so they're on two seizure medications and still having seizures uh, at the time of surgery, then we kind of do a combined seizure focus surgery as well as a tumor oncologic surgery, kind of combined. Um, I think there are probably some patients who can benefit from that, you know, even 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 if they have reasonable control of their seizures. And so we we have started to do that and tried to start teasing out which patients could be most ben- could you know get the most benefit from such a combined approach. Because we often might find something close by to the overt tumor is an area of seizure production, and we would want to include that in the resection. It makes complete sense, um, as seizures are really I would say a m- major impact factor for their you know, long term, you know, quality of life and and things for for our patients. So I think I think seizures have been undervalued as as part of um, comprehensive care for these patients is one of the reasons we, you know, want to develop such a program. And and it, you know, we're lucky to have an expert like Dr. Templer as part of our group.
1: Yeah, I like that. It's it's incredibly helpful for us to have someone, Dr. Templar, as part of the team because you know, I'm a neurologist, you know, but I focus so much on the tumor aspect of their care. But, you know, when we see people who are on three, four, or even five seizure meds, you know, these are things where the, the medications themselves have, you know, additional toxicities. And, you know, a lot of when it comes down to quality of life is we're trying to balance all of these things. And that's kind of one of the uh, aspects of the long longitudinal kind of care we're trying to think about these patients is, well, you know, if their seizure is, you know, uh, very kind of short, is a very focal, you know, uh, do you need to be on? you know, 50 drugs uh, just to kind of get control of a very focal seizure um, and then kind of collaborating and kind of really focusing on the tumor treatment aspect of it. So there's so many... um, um kind of nuances that it's really helpful to have kind of her input. Uh, we think about c- seizure semiology, uh, what the seizure looks like. You know, when we look at our patient scans very closely, we're trying to see is there something that we can potentially predict? Uh, will a tumor potentially start regrowing in an area that you may not see on an MRI just yet? So these are all kind of helpful things that surely adds to uh, the dynamic in the team.
0: So your comprehensive approach really allows you to individualize uh, therapy for uh, each patient.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's that's the idea. Yeah.
3: I think our patients really appreciate that too. Our patients see us walk in the room together and have that conversation together, or maybe one or two of us talk about a plan together, or as Dr. Dixit is discussing next steps in terms of chemotherapy or Dr. Tate, we're, we're all in the room when we're talking about and upcoming surgery. I think the patients see that comprehensive element too and really appreciate us talking to them about what are their goals and what is most important to them in these upcoming months and these upcoming years. And that's something that's always been a key part of our discussion in the plan and the treatment plan. Thanks
0: for that, Dr. Templer. Uh, well, let's talk about a particular case. Uh, Dr. Dixit, do you have an example?
1: Yeah, there's a there's a very nice young lady we saw. She established care with us, I think about two years ago. Uh, uh, she lives, in, I think, middle of Illinois. Uh, diagnosed with uh, oligodendroglioma, so um, a low, lower grade glioma with an IDH mutation and a 1p19q co-deletion. So for the board exams, that's an oligodendroglioma. Um, uh, and so she was diagnosed. I mean, over a decade ago, um, had a resection um and then it was kind of followed for years uh and this, these these tumors can grow so slowly uh um you know, millimeters per year. And that's one of the things that we, we're following, we're trying to track is, you know, how do these tumors grow volumetrically, meaning that these tumors are not just a two-dimensional slice on an MRI, they're three-dimensional structures that invade the surrounding brain. And when something grows very, very slowly, you know, it's hard to actually see if it's growing. Uh, it's like I use the analogy with patients, if a ship is going off course, if, if you don't look back to you know, the last point, you won't know until you look back to where you started. Um, And, uh, you know, she was doing really, really well. Then, you know, then over the course of the past few months, uh, she started having increasing seizures to the point where she had a major seizure while she was driving. uh, And then she had a motor motor vehicle accident. uh, And then it was led to further imaging. And then, you know, looking back at it all, it's like, oh, this tumor has grown actually quite a bit over the course of a decade. Uh, and then, then she saw us, um, and then so we had a, a group discussion. You know, we discuss, you know, from Dr. Tate's perspective, that you need surgery. Um, but each time we think about uh, the role for surgery, is there shouldn't ever be just a discussion for surgery in and of itself. It should be, well, we do one thing. What comes afterwards? Um, the winter was coming. Uh, this patient has young children. Um, And one of the things that we discussed is this patient never received uh, chemotherapy or radiation, which is uh, kind of standard of care for uh, these tumor types. Uh, The traditional sequence would be surgery followed by radiation, either with chemotherapy or followed by more chemotherapy. Um, but uh, there's some data to support that, does the sequence really matter so much? Uh, so because she lived far away and we wanted to utilize a specific kind of radiation, which is proton radiation. Um, there's not many places around the country that offer this. Um, you know, Northwestern has a proton center out in the West suburbs. Um, you know, part of the discussion was she lives far away. you know, winter's coming, she's got young kids. You know, after surgery, do we start with chemotherapy first, kind of get control of the tumor? Uh, we saw shrinkage on imaging, and then uh, after she finished several cycles of chemotherapy, or neoadjuvant chemotherapy, if you will, um, she received uh, proton radiation, kind of in the uh, summer, and she's doing really well now. Uh, now we're just kind of observing. Um, so this is kind of a this patient kind of when they look back at it, kind of we're just reminded you know, we have all these tools that we use to kind of help patients with this. Um, But the sequence is important, you know, when we think about um, uh, kind of when to do things, how to do things. uh, And then we just kind of took things out a little outside the box, if you will. And then, uh, you know, in her specific situation, uh, we decided to be a little bit different with the sequence, and it worked. Uh, And this is something that we, you know, try to think about with every patient is for the specific patient, the specific family dynamic, the specific, you know, where you live, you know, uh, do you have kids? And these are all things that are important to uh, making a decision on... Then the right next step. And from a seizure standpoint, she's doing great now. You know, uh, I let Dr. Temple comment on her seizure frequency, but this was a major aspect. You know, she couldn't drive for a period of time because she had a major seizure. Her kids were in the car with her. You know, these are really important things that we have to think about when we see these people.
0: Uh, you mentioned uh, surgery, Dr. Tate. Where does surgery usually fit in with these patients?
2: Yeah, well, it's a great question. So um, there's kind of two different time points, so and it, and the, the kind of considerations are different at, at these different time points. So first of all is when we first find out about the tumor. So uh, relative to what we've been discussing prior, probably 80% or so of these patients actually present with a seizure. So they're a normal 30, 40-year-old patient, fine, no problems whatsoever, just have out of the blue have a generalized seizure or a major seizure. They, pr- they come into the ER, get an MRI and a CT scan, and shows this lesion. Um, and then, you know, we're kind of that, – that's kind of the first time I generally meet folks. And so at that time, you know, we usually have – you know, if it looks like we're quite certain of the diagnosis, then we would proceed with surgery essentially at that time. Um, sometimes if it's more subtle because it can be confused with – the arc, could be confused with other things on imaging, then we might follow it for a, a – you know, follow it very carefully every two or three months for a bit to show that it grows, and if so, then we kind of proceed with surgery. So there's kind of upfront surgery. Uh, It's been pretty clearly shown now that uh, for these tumors, the more you can remove even actually past what's obvious on the MRI, the the, the better patients do. On the other hand, if we cause any difficulty in the patient, if there's any complication with surgery, any neurologic deficit from surgery, they might have that for 30 years in the prime of their life, so, so, so we have to be very, very careful in, as thinking about that. And what I try to do before, during, and after surgery, at least at this phase, is trying to better understand what is the patient's functional anatomy, um, which you can't find in any textbook or, or not really, um, relative to the tumor location. It's a dynamic process, much, much more dynamic than we thought. Um, usually, in a good way, patients can have these ab- ab- actually quite impressive, very large lesions and be, for all intents and purposes, just fine. Um, so we do very comprehensive testing, neuropsychological testing, um, imaging studies, um, sometimes EEG if seizures are in the in the fold. Um, get all of this information at our fingertips to design the best surgery for them with the goal of removing as much tumor as we can safely while not harming the patient. Um, and it's kind of a tailored approach. It might make a difference how old the patient is, what are their goals, what are their jobs, what are their hobbies, what, you know. Um, if they're a dancer, then we have to be very concerned with visuospatial function, whereas that might not be as uh, prominent for an, a, another patient. And so, for example, we might map that out during surgery with stimulation-based mapping. That's something, you know, I work a lot on and is, is kind of my expertise, um, is trying to remove tumors inside the brain while not harming uh, critical structures. And so, that's really the focus. Um, and then inevitably, these tumors recur, or, or more, uh, more precisely, they grow. They, they grow, and they were stable for years, and then now they're growing again. And that's another time we come into play from a surgical standpoint. Um, or if they're having refractory seizures, uh, that's another time we might come. We might think about surgery for them if it makes sense. And uh, there, there are a lot of, you know, it's actually not well known or well understood what is the right time to come back to, you know, to, to operate again. If you think about it, this tumor, it's slowly, slowly growing. Well, when is the right time to intervene? Um, we don't actually know the answer to that. We have some general guidances, but those are, you know, not, not actually that well worked out. And so that's one of the other things we're trying to study is what's the best time to, to do surgery a, a, up front. It's, you know, an initial diagnosis is it's fairly straightforward, um, but it's not nearly as straightforward when you're 10 years out. Um, should we do it now? Should we wait six months from now? What is our trigger going to be to operate um, that, that's I think, um, a much more open question.
0: Understood. Now, Dr. Templer, uh, in terms of seizure control, Dr. Dixit was telling me that this oligodendroglioma patient presented with a seizure and then, uh, uh, seizures really affected her quality of life. H- how did you manage those seizures?
3: So up front, her local neurologist had started levetiracetam, which is the most common medication that we see used. And it's commonly used because people generally tolerate it well. It doesn't interact with other medications. We can um, quickly get it to a therapeutic dose. The challenges, I would say, is that more commonly, if you ask the right questions, you'll find that patients have mood side effects, irritability, some depression. Um, Especially if you ask their partner, we see it more commonly acknowledged if you ask the right questions. But that being said, in general, it's tolerated. But despite the increasing levotiracetam, she was on a relatively high dose when she had that car accident. And so we talked about other agents. And for her, I use leucosamide because she's a young, otherwise healthy person, had no cardiac comorbidities. Um, Another piece to her care, though, which I think is important to acknowledge is what Dr. Dixit mentioned about the the sort of traumatic component of the fact that her seizures began in her left foot and she was driving and was unable to stop the car fast enough. And she knew she was having a seizure and her kids were in the back seat. And so to comment on, I think, just how traumatic that could be that she knew it was happening and she couldn't do anything to stop it and knew that she was putting her children at risk. And she had been stable otherwise and then this kind of happened and and quickly progressed to a bigger seizure was pretty traumatic for her so we also try to acknowledge that and work with our patients in um getting them to see a therapist or working on connecting them with the right people but for her seizure component so we started uh leucosamide And the most important thing for her was getting the repeat imaging, seeing that we did see progression and having surgery. And then after surgery, since then, it's always important to to reassess at every visit that I meet with patients do they need these medications and do they need this dose of the medications? And for her, we've been able to lower her meds. She's on VIMPAT mono or leucosamide monotherapy now and is doing very well.
2: And I would just say that, um, you know, relative to what. What we were discussing in terms of surgery for the, for this individual patient, you know, as as Dr. Miller mentioned, she had a seizure involving the leg. And so this was very close to the, the primary motor area. And so that was, you know, the, the key function really at risk that was near, nearby. And so we did the case with, with uh, motor mapping during surgery to kind of, again, maximize how much we can remove while minimizing any any permanent neurologic risk. Um, and she's done well from a, from a strength perspective um, as a result of that.
0: Oh, that's great. Well, Dr. Tate, uh, before we wrap up, um, is there anything else your team is working on to improve survival and quality of life for patients with low-grade glioma?
2: Well, yeah, there you know there are a number of projects, some of which we've we've alluded to earlier. One of the things we're trying to assess, um, and we have some funding uh, through Northwestern to look at this, is um, better assessing quality of life in 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 our patients. I think we use kind of some old school cancer metrics that maybe aren't as relevant for this patient population. This is a very different patient than, say, a 72-year-old gentleman with a glioblastoma and expected survival of 18 months with maximal therapy. So, you know, th- that that's very different. And so we want to make sure that we're kind of assessing how we're doing, frankly. We're, we're decent at, accept, at, at understanding progression from a tumor standpoint with imaging primarily, although that could be improved as well. But we're not as good at Determining, I think, is is how the patient's doing functionally, and, and what Dr. Templer mentioned earlier has it, been pretty eye opening for me. Just from a purely seizure, as a good example for a seizure, seizure perspective, if you ask patients the right questions, often they're having seizures and don't know it, or they're not telling us about it. Not not volitionally, they just don't, don't know know to look for. Or even us as ne- as uh, neurosurgeons or as physicians don't know what to look for, or side effects from medication. So. I think those are things that we're wrapping into these. This new we're developing a new quality of life scale uh, here at Northwestern to kind of assess that and tell us how we're doing uh, in terms of uh, really um, instead of patting ourselves on the back all the time, trying to figure out how can we really improve how each patient is doing in in a real way. Um, And then you know, obviously, we're the other thing is we developing this cohort of patients. You know, it makes all the sense in the world to include those folks for like IDH inhibitors, right? Uh, Trials such as that where we're trying to you know, study things that have an impact on the tumor biology itself. We're also doing things like longitudinal assessment of the patient's functional anatomy. So that's important for us from a surgical standpoint or even from radiation oncology standpoint to understand, well, because we know now that function actually moves in these patients or is redistributed, I should say. And so maybe we want to take advantage of that, wait a little bit longer to do surgery, for example, to give the patient time for their anatomy to not rewire but redistribute, take a parallel pathway. Um, and so understanding that ahead of surgery might uh, be useful as well. and, and just different, different ways to map out function in the brain. You know we have used We use the typical technique of stimulating in the operating room with a small electrical current. Um, the, 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 the honest truth is that's what Dr. Penfield did in the 1930s, uh, and we're doing the same thing, which is impressive and sad at the same time, right? I think So there probably are better ways to assess function than that. It works, uh, at least to some degree, but we need to, you know, it's, it's incumbent upon us to improve it for our patients and so we can make surgery safer and uh, make more intelligent decisions about when to intervene in this kind of very longitudinal kind of disease process.
0: Oh, thanks for that. Well, to conclude, um, and I'll open this up to uh, all of you, are there any final recommendations for providers who are managing patients with uh, low-grade glioma?
1: Yeah, so you, know, so, you know, these are kind of complex patients with, you know, many uh, needs that are seen. You know, some are kind of obvious, right, you know, tumor. You know, as an oncologist, we always think about, you know, survival. We also think about, you know, what does the MRI look like, if things are progressing or not. Um, but, you know, what I encourage, you know, all providers uh, to who see patients like this is to really kind of delve down into kind of the nitty-gritty of their life, right? You know, these are people who are young. Um, there are people who have... Um, I mean, every patient has this, but but these are patients who are, you know, often have no other medical issues. Uh, these are people who are often kind of uh, trying to, you know, advance their careers in some sort of professional realm, and these are all aspects of their care that really should be taken into account. Um, you know, when we think about the appropriate treatment plan, and from a practical perspective, I mean. Uh, This is kind of where it comes down to expertise. I mean, having an impressive first surgery, the more you move up front, there's a lot of data to support, you know, what we call maximal safer section with the least amount of tumor that is left behind volumetrically. Uh, There's a lot of retrospective data that shows that really kind of helps. That helps everything we do afterwards, you know, a good surgery up front really helps the next phase, which is, you know, chemo radiation. Um, uh, and so, you know, from for anyone who sees patients uh, with low grade glioma, you know, I would advocate for ensuring that these patients are able to kind of get the most—I um, don't say the most aggressive surgery, but I should say the most advanced surgery possible.
2: Yeah, I, I think one of the things I would say is that the philosophy has really changed. That these used to be patients twenty years ago where you would get a biopsy and just watch them because they did so well, and that's true. If you do nothing, they'll do well for a little while, and then the next thing you know, they'll be they'll be progressing, and so. I think, as physicians, we need to be more aggressive for these tumors and less aggressive maybe for the higher-grade tumors, which is kind of reverse of how things typically have been. We do all these things for patients with glioblastoma, this high-grade glioma, because they're more common, and and, and all rightfully so, um, but, but we make so much more impact. Um, any way you want to measure it, for low-grade gliomas compared to high-grade gliomas, and so, and they're not benign tumors. I, I you know, we still see patients where that's kind of how the, what they've been told, and sort of that's their mind mind frame, um, and they're they're absolutely not. They do inevitably inevitably progress, and so, the way we, we want to really kick the can down the road um, and delay that progression, it, it, it makes a big difference. Is one of the one of the most impactful, you know. Surgeries we do as neurosurgeons is, is on low-grade patients it can double survival, for example. And when you think about the time, type of numbers we're talking about here, that's a, that's a really major impact. And so I think just being really serious and aggressive about the way we think about these tumors rather than sort of considering them just sort of slowly kind of trickling along tumor. Um, you know, those of us who see these patients all the time know that, but that, that may not be the impression out in the community as much.
0: Well, it's really exciting uh, for me as a neurologist to hear about uh, the progress that's being made and the progress that is going to be made uh, shortly uh, in the treatment of uh, low-grade glioma. So, doctors Dixit, Tate, and Templer, thank you all very much for this informative discussion.
3: Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for having
0: you. us. To refer your patient or for more information, Head to our website at breakthroughsforphysicians.nm.org slash neuro to get connected with one of our providers. And that wraps up this episode of Better Edge, a Northwestern medicine podcast for physicians. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Wilner. Thank you for listening.